the end of this, I thank you that it is a change of conversion made in the hearts of your people. And with that, you get the glory, you alone, in Jesus' name. And all those that are in agreement said, amen. As you are being seated, just find one person and tell them something good that the Lord has done for you. Praise God. Well, as you are being seated, you can go ahead and turn your, your or flip, tap, scroll in your Bibles into Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick up just where we left off. Pastor Greg and I just got back from Columbus, Mississippi. They had an in-sync marriage conference there, and we had a good old time. And we were just so blessed, humbled, and honored by just their hunger for God's word and just practical applications. So it was just a blessing to be there. So we, they worked us, though. We ministered nonstop. <laughs> they, they worked us. So praise God. Pastor Gregory is at home uh, just getting some rest, getting tanked up and ready for the upcoming weeks as we segue into the season of honoring and recognizing the, resurrec the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For those that are here and your first time is today, I invite you to come back and receive from the anointing that's on his life. But for those of you that have been here or if this is just your first time on this message, we are in part two. So I do encourage you to go back on SoundCloud and um, listen to the message. If you did not listen, welcome to those of you that are viewing us by way of Periscope or Facebook Live. We're honored to have you with us, even though it's virtually. Praise God. But in Acts chapter 5, we are talking about the seven essential relationships that everyone should have in their lives. The seven indispensable, top seven indispensable relationships that you cannot live without, part two. We start off with number one. Who was number one? Who's your Nathan? Number two, who's your Jonathan? Gosh, I'm impressed, y'all. Number three, who's your Timothy? Who's your mentee? And now we're going to pick up on number four, Acts chapter four, verse 36. It says, and Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, Everybody, our folks just always got to give somebody a nickname, don't they? So the man's name was Joseph, Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, being, meaning the son of consolation. That word consolation in the Greek is the Greek word periklesis. Some of us have heard that before, periklesis. And that equals or means exhortation, comforter, or encourager, exhortation, comforter, encourager. Everyone needs a cheerleader. Who is your Barnabas? Who is that person that's going to egg you on in the darkest moments? Who is that person when you want to have a pity party, refuse to leave you in the low, and decides that they're going to kick you in the rear of your pants and say, hey, there's yet a better tomorrow. Who's going to remind you that while weeping may endure for the night, joy cometh in the morning? Who's going to remind you that though man may be against you, God is always for you? And if God is for you, who can be against you? 
Now, Barnabas was that dude. Barnabas was the one that would encourage the people to go out and do mighty things in the name of Jesus. He made them believe that they could stop time if they needed to. Now, understanding that when we have a Barnabas, we all are responsible for not only having a Barnabas, but we're all responsible for being a Barnabas. Doesn't scripture encourage us to speak to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and also to encourage one another in the things of the Lord? Doesn't he say, tell us in Galatians chapter 6 to carry one another's burdens sometimes? There are times where we have to be encouragers of one another. There is a song that says, Son, well, how does that song go? I have to encourage myself. Y'all know what song I'm talking about. I was about to go there, but. That anointing is not resting on me right now. (laughs) We all need affirmation. And if, since we are currently living in a day and age where we come from so many broken families, so many compromised relationships, especially our men not having a father, the affirmation of of, of anyone Affirmation is so key because in that affirmation, we sow seeds of confidence. We sow seeds of you can do it. We sow seeds of achievement. We invite people just to believe for a moment that success can be yours. And because, you know, we are so quick, a lot of times I'm, I was just looking at Facebook and social media, rather, let me say that, while waiting in the airport, and just notice that how quick we are to snap on people. And what's sad about social media is sometimes we get real, real courageous. And folks will have arguments with people on Facebook, and the other person don't even realize that they're going off on them. But I wonder what would it be like if we were to use the resources that we have to encourage one another? that even though it's the darkest moments, there's still light at the other side of the day. Now, this is what you need to look for in a Barnabas. This is the typical, this is the typical persona of a Barnabas. The Barnabas, a, 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 an innate, naturally born Barnabas, will tend to be a good Samaritan. He loves to lend support. He's your cheerleader. Oftentimes, that person is your, is your angel. They just happen to come out of the blue when you need them the most. How many of you have ever gotten a text or a call from someone right when you needed it the most? And they were just calling and say, hey, you know what? I was just thinking about you. I just wanted to let you know someone's thinking about you and praying for you right now. In that moment, that person was a Barnabas. B, your Barnabas will pray, not pray. They will P-R-A-Y for you and not use your low situation to P-R-E-Y on you. A lot of times, the reason why we're so hurt and so timid about relationships is because we felt like we were victims of someone else's prey. We feel like in our lowest moment, we were abandoned and we did not have the support that we thought we could depend on from another person. They won't use your low state, your hurtful state, to hurt you, they will use that time to pray for you. Your Barnabas will tend to be a comedian. 
He's usually the one that always has something funny to say. They know the power and the antidote of laughter. How many of us just have some silly people in our lives? I mean, they, I mean, <laughs> they just find the craziest thing to say in the time when you just want to be mad and upset. Those are treasures in your lives. And that Barnabas will tend to be long-suffering. They will deal with you until the end. Now, can I tell on myself for a moment? I'm one of those people. If, I, if you're coming to me for advice and for counsel, I'm going to give it to you one time. I'm going to give it to you two times. I'm going to give it to you again three times. And I might just give it to you four times. But after that, and you still want to be stuck on stupid... My default personality, now this is without Christ dealing with me. This is without me acknowledging the Holy Spirit, but my default personality is, okay, you can be stranded on your island on yourself because I see now you just need to knock your head up against the wall. And I, I, don't come talking to me. No, nope, and I'll simply say, have we talked about this before? Yeah, but you know, but you know, and the, but this is different. It ain't different. Same situation, different person. It ain't different. But a Barnabas will deal with you until the end. It seems like that Barnabas is always willing to answer the phone for you. That Barnabas does not hit decline or let you slip on into voicemail. And if you do slip into voicemail, they'll call you back for real. Amen? Your Barnabas will tend to coach you until the end. He helps you to live not by the rules and regulations of your heart, but he will encourage you, the best of you, according to who you are. Now, there was once, I had a friend at one time in my life, and, you know, things got estranged, but anyway, amen. But this person, I called her my unicorn daisies and rainbows friend. Because it didn't matter what was going on, she would, she would somehow find a way to find the unicorns, the rainbows, and the daisies in the situation. Oh, one time I had a situation that, I mean, I was heated. I was accused of something I didn't do, and, and I didn't even understand how the other person could even find me in the situation. But she turned around and said, well, at least you know they know your name. And she said, and that's the beginning of fame. I said, okay. <laughs> now, real talk, I want to knock, up her head, knock her upside her head in that moment because I wanted to be mad, but you know, I, had to, I, I couldn't do nothing but sit back and laugh about it. Your Barnabas will provoke confidence in you. He will keep you uplifted. Your Barnabas won't gas you up, but they will be sincerely there to encourage you and to motivate you and inspire you towards your best. Number five, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. Number five, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 15. It says in verse 9, And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elisha said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you, Elisha said. Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Verse 15. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. 
And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. Now, let me back up. I'm just going to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. But see, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, it reads, So he departed this and found Elisha, the son of Shephat, who was plowing with 12 yokes of oxen before him. And he with the 12... And he with the twelve. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the ox and ran after Elijah and said to him, Let me pray, I, let me, I pray thee, kiss my mother and my father, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back, for what have I done unto thee? And he returned back from him, took the yoke of oxen, slew them, boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, gave it to the people. They ate. He arose, and then he followed, went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Who is your Elijah? Who is your mentor? See, in this situation, Elijah saw Elisha and said, you know what, I'm to mentor you. And when he cast his mantle upon him, he basically said, come with me. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm not trying to make you me, but I am intentionally making you, imparting in you experience, knowledge, understanding that will cause you to run greatly this race that we've set out to, to, to run. Who is your mentor? Who is it that you can respect, you can honor enough to ask questions, to seek their guidance, to gain understanding? Who is that person in your life? Now, for me, some of my mentors are dead. Some of them are alive. Some of them know me, and some of them don't. I have different mentors for any different categories of my life. Understand that there's a toolbox necessary to build a house. And sometimes I could pull that, because you can't build a house with, an, with one, one instrument, right? And sometimes there are just people that are keener and better in different areas. So I made it my purpose to glean and learn from various people that I just, I just park on. You know, I, I've gleaned a lot. I mean, I'm just so humbled and honored that I can call Betty Price Mama Betty. And I can call on her. And when I was going through my tough time, mind you, she sought us out. She called us when all that mess was going down in our lives. And she said, Precious, I'm just here to encourage you, to let you know that we're praying for you. Though it's awful what happened, I know, we know by the Spirit of God that he has greater things in store for you. And this is while I'm yet mad, discouraged, want to go off on somebody, but at the same time trying to be right and calm down social media. And she would, just, she would just encourage me. She would call me at least once a week and say, Precious, remember Psalms. It says that when your ways pleases the Lord, even your enemies will be at peace with you. And she would deposit that verse in me every single week for almost a year. Who is your mentor? Who are you humble enough to say, you know more than me, and I need you in my life to teach me? Tony Dungy is quoted as saying, remember that mentor leadership is all about serving. He quotes Jesus and said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying, tell me, and I forget. Teach me, I may remember. Involve me, and I learn. Robert Frost, a famous author, says, I'm not a teacher, but an awakener. Who's your mentor? 
Who is in your life that can awaken and set ablaze the fire within you to go out and do things that you really don't think you can do? Who's the one that can give you understanding beyond your degrees and your titles? Now, mentors will play different roles in your life, but you respect and honor their accomplishments. A mentor can give you, your, can give you like I said, what your degrees could never give you. They have witnessed, experienced, and, and, and a hand in your time of learning. This is what to look for in a mentor. Because, you know, many a people want to be somebody's mentor, but you've got to be careful and know you. You've got to know you. Character is everything. Don't align, we're going to talk a little bit about this later on, but don't allow yourself with, don't call someone a mentor and you know there's red flags and that their character may be shady. Because mind you, mentor, every successful person is not a mentor. And I'll leave that right there. A, who, this is what to look for in your mentor, some ingredients. What is their reputation? Who do people say they are? B, what is the condition of their family? What's the condition of their family? Especially when you talk about a mentor for marriages, a mentor for, for uh, leadership. What's the condition of their family? C, do they inspire you to learn or are, just they, are they just telling you what to do? Do they inspire you to learn, or are they just more interested in telling you what to do? Now, finally, do they have the three H's? The three H's, do they have humility? Are they humble enough to share their failures and their successes? Are they honest? A mentor will be honest enough to share their secrets, and honest enough with you to rebuke you when you want to take the easy route. A mentor, that third H, do they have honor? Do they honor those that trail the blaze, that blaze the trail before them? Do they have mentors? Like I said, some of my mentors are dead. Smith Wigglesworth, long gone. But he's a mentor of mine. Dad Hagen, I got a chance to sit, uh, Kenneth Hagen Sr., I got a chance to sit up under him, had plenty of conversations with him, but he's gone on to be with the Lord. Still my mentor, still read books by him. Okay? C.H. Lewis, long gone. Carnegie, long gone. Plenty of people, long gone, that I still glean from. Why? Because I choose to learn, I choose to read. Amen? So your Elijah will provoke you to learn. They'll keep you searching. They're not going to make it easy for you. And check this. It's not your mentor's responsibility to chase you. It's your responsibility to chase your mentor. Amen? Now, number six. Hmm. Number six. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, two places. 2 Samuel chapter 4. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. It says in verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. 
He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, let me give you the backdrop of this situation. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. We talked about the Jonathan earlier, David's best friend. But now we're honing in on Saul's grandson. See, what's happened already is that Saul and Jonathan have been killed at war. Now David is the reigning king. The people have, have just basically made up their mind that now anybody from Saul's house has been a reject. Understand that, that God had rejected Saul and his lineage. So therefore, Jonathan had been rejected and Mephibosheth had been rejected. Who is your Mephibosheth? Who is your reject? Everyone needs someone in their life that society may not deem acceptable. Mephibosheth. Turn with me to Samuel. Well, well, yes, Second Samuel chapter nine. Later on in the story, Second Samuel chapter nine, verse ten, and I'll pick up right in the middle towards the end of the verse. It says, "But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always." David goes and finds Mephibosheth. Now the lineage had been rejected, but after they find out what happened to Saul and Jonathan. His nanny grabbed him at five years old and started running away. But when she was in her efforts to run away, Mephibosheth basically falls and he becomes lame in his feet. He breaks legs, does whatever. He basically can't walk. So not only is he a social reject, but basically during that time, physical disabilities made you not really profitable. I'm just saying what it was. And so David realizes and finds out that Mephibosheth is still alive. And he could have treated him like the rest of society treated him. I mean, it was his best friend. He could have just took care of him for the rest of his life in honor of his best friend. But no, what David did was a type and shadow of what Jesus does for us. He said, this reject will always have a seat at my table. He will always be treated with honor. I, the king, will always respect him. He is a part of my company. I get emotional because growing up, he might be listening by way of SoundCloud, so I'm going to say his name. I had a, a person in my life named Kevin Daniels. And we met each other in middle school, sixth grade. He was awkward. He was unusual. He was. I mean, but the boy can sing. When he sang, everybody loved him. But when he wasn't singing, didn't nobody want to be around him. He was a little nerdy. But not only was he nerdy, he was just weird. He was just unusual. But he lived around the corner from me, and we were, it was a, a, almost a mile walk home every day. And he lived on the next block beyond mine, so he and I would end up walking the whole time that I was on my way home all throughout middle school. And then we ended up going to the same high school together. And we remained friends. It was convenient. He lived around the corner. And we, we just remained friends. I don't know what it was. I just felt for him. I had compassion on him. 
and we became adults, and he went on to the military, and, and he was still kind of weird to most people, and he had odd, odd assignments and everything else, but he was very, very smart, so he was able to secure a job, and he ended up meeting a young lady, and when he met this young lady, he fell in love with her, and he said, I want to marry her, Patty, I want to marry her. Okay, Kev, let's, let's go and get married. And he says, but I want you to be my best man. I said, okay, I'll be your best woman. And he's like, she knows all about you. There's no insecurities. She, she knows I met her and everything else. And, and sure enough, when it came time to get married, I stood there as his best woman. I haven't had that experience since. It was kind of unusual, but nevertheless, I was very honored. Not too long ago, maybe about three or four years ago, he reached out to me on Facebook because we had lost touch. And um, no, it was more than that, about five years ago, I ended up being his daughter's god godmother, but I failed in that relationship because we had lost touch. So I was godmom in name only. And I felt terrible about it. So by the time he reaches out to me, maybe about five years ago, he's letting me know that she's dying. Um, she needed a kidney transplant and something was going on. But anyway, I can't remember all the details, but she passed away. And I my heart bled for him. And because he was already unusual, I could tell he didn't quite know how to assess this situation. And all I could do was just listen, support him as much as I could. Then a little time afterwards, he calls me and he says, Patty, what? I know what's wrong with me. I'm like, what you talking about, Kev? I know what's wrong with me. And he says, I have Asperger's. And although in the natural, you know, spiritually speaking, I denounce that, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus, you shall, you are healed, your mind is whole, I could have went there. He was so happy to know why he was weird. He was so happy to understand that there was a name associated with his rejection. And he better learned how to cope with it. And he said, at the end of our conversation, thank you so much for being a friend. Thank you so much for being a friend. I still love you, Dav. My last name was Davenport, and he would call me Dav if it wasn't Patty. And when I was writing this down, I couldn't help but to think of Kevin. Because I wonder how many people we as Christians, as believers, as carriers of love, don't want to deal with that outcast. We don't want to be seen with someone that might have been, you know, a reject. We don't want to be caught, and we, it's uncomfortable for us to sit next to that person that stinks. There was some time ago, we had a women's event, and I called somebody, she's a great actor, and I called her out of Orlando because I knew no one knew who she was. And I said, Jacina, I'm going to need for you to come here. I want you to dress like a hoochie. I want you to be loud. I want you to be rambunctious. Some of y'all were there. And she came in there, I mean, and she, she took it a little far. <laughs> but it was a woman's meeting. I mean, she had it as tight as tight can get. She, I mean, 
and they and I, I orchestrated. No one knew. Not even the people that were serving as security knew, except one person. And I had them strategically sit her in the middle of the room. This is a luncheon, a Mother's Day luncheon. We got almost 400 women up in there. They paid their money. And I'm talking, I said, Jacina, I want you to be disruptive. I want you to be rude. I want you to be loud. So she's like, oh, you know, that's me. I got you. <laughs> so, <laughs> excuse me. So I'm talking, and I asked something about who's the oldest, and the young lady got up. It just so happened to fall right in place. And the young lady gets up, and she starts talking about how Oh, my mother, she is 94 years old. She has 13 kids, and she just kept going on and on. And Jacina chose it to be an opportunity. I'm tired of her talking about her mama. Let's go on to the next person. Dog. <laughs> and she had probably three or four, I mean, outbursts. Finally, Sharon, she's somewhere out here. Sharon, we're going to have to do something with her. And so finally she had her last outburst. She said, I got to go to the bathroom. This is too much for me. And she gets up and she storms off. Next thing I know, I see Sharon and two other MODs following up after her. And by the end of that meeting, so many women were in tears because, of, because only one person, and that was Sharon, tried to comfort her and calm her down. But so many women repented because they judged her by the way she dressed, they judged her by her loud talk and her disrespectful attitude. And only, now it was more than one person, maybe one or two people said, you know, you may be hurting. But this is just not how we act. So who was your reject? Who was that person that you said, you know what? Yeah, I got something to do, but they want to talk for a moment. You know what? They might smell funny, but I'm going to go give them a hug anyway. Who is that person that tends to call you a lot and tends to be unusual, but you want to see, but you, you say, you know what, they need to hear an encouraging word from me? Who is that person that you will think about them knowing that they're probably by themselves? Hey, you want to go to a movie? Who is your reject? Who is your Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth is so appropriate because his, word, his name means dispeller of shame. His name means dispeller of shame, to cast away shame. And that's what Dave did. David, King David said, you know what? You will always have a seat at my table because I'm here to make sure that we cast away your shame. Is that not what Jesus does for us? There was two nails he took to his hands, his right hand and his left hand. And I truly believe, and I, 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 I imagine this in my mind, that on one nail, the head of that nail, I just imagine this. I'm not saying it's true or accurate, but I just imagine this. On one hand, the head of that nail read shame. And on the other hand, the head of that nail read guilt. And he took those two nails to redeem us. Because to God, at that time, all of us were rejects. I don't care if you've been to jail. I don't care if you've done the most horrendous crime. I don't care if you're physically or mentally 
disabled or challenged. I don't care if you've suffered and been the victim of something and for some reason you've made yourself a reject. We as a body of Christ, as the ones that's supposed to be known by our loved one for another, someone is there to love you, to encourage you, to support you, to tell you, hey, you will always have a seat at my table. Who's your reject? I'm going to save my seventh essential relationship for next week. And if you're believing God for healing or if you know someone that is, you definitely want to come on out on next Sunday. It's going to be a bold but very educational time because that seventh relationship is the Holy Spirit. We say thank you, Jesus. We say Father, Abba. But all too often we neglect the one that's with us all the time the Holy Spirit. But let's talk real quickly about some, the other side of this coin, the unsafe relationships, the toxic relationships. Because you can go after your Jonathans, your Nathans. You can seek out a mentee or a mentor. You can seek out your reject. But understand that even in those type of relationships, you still have to be sensitive and, and discerning enough to, discern, to know when it's toxic. Better yet, to determine whether you're toxic. Okay? So, all too often, we are timid about relationships because we've been hurt. And I was flooded with inbox messages and, and, and emails directly to me about how people find themselves in the same type of hurtful relationships over and over and over again. And I was just led by the Holy Spirit to dive into some information that I had in my reservoir and, and, and talk about this as I conclude this message. There are, typically, there are toxic people around. And a lot of times we might be toxic and we've become so satiated in our own righteousness that we don't acknowledge and work with and deal with our own toxicity. So if, if it's you, then praise God, you've learned something. If it's someone you're associated with, Praise God, you're learning something. But typically, toxic people fall in three categories. Typically, toxic people fall in three categories. These three categories are the abandoners, the critics, and the irresponsibles. The abandoners, the critics, and the irresponsibles. I don't want to allocate too much time to this, but I thought it necessary for you to know. Our people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Let me talk about the abandoners. Oftentimes, the abandoner can start a relationship, but they can't seem to finish one. That's that male or female that just hops from boyfriend or girlfriend to boyfriend and girlfriend. They have issues with commitment. It's not because they want to be hurtful. Oftentimes, over 90% of the times, it's because they've been abandoned themselves. So they can start a relationship, but they can't finish a relationship. Oftentimes, once you get too close to them, they want to shut it down. And because they don't understand conclusion or closure, they just stop calling you. Stop responding to your texts. All of a sudden, something blows up, and they're not there for you. Never mind that you've been there for them, but they're not there for you. Those are the abandoners. They usually bail right when you need them the most. 
This is what the word of God says about how to respond to an abandoner or how not to be an abandoner. I'm just giving you, there's several scriptures, but I want to give you the antidote. The antidote is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, when he says, Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Understand, when your relationships get hard, if it's based upon love and it's based upon just sincere, a sincere heart, you, you don't really get close until you go through hard times. So if you find that you might be an abandoner, or if you have experienced abandoners over and over and over again, you have to pay attention to those red flags and pause. And not allow yourself to get so caught up emotionally, but let it run its course just to identify and be sure this is where it is. But understand, our antidote and our responsibility is to never grow weary in well-doing. Understand that as we sow seeds of patience and long-suffering, love, we shall reap a reward if we faint not. The critic, now this is a heavy one right here, especially us ladies. The critic, those are the ones that are more sensitive to what's wrong with you than they are to what's right with you. And this is the tricky part about a critic, because the critic typically has clarity of thought, usually smart and intelligent, usually understand what's next but they sit in the seat of judgment and scorn. They want to point out what went wrong with the situation, but when you ask them about a solution, they're stuck. And a lot of times, what we can do as we grow and, 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 and mature, we don't, a lot of times, and, a lot of times we don't want to extend the same grace and patience to another person that we ourselves required in our growth and maturing. A critic oftentimes can give you good information, but then they leave you feeling guilty or insufficient. And you got to be careful not to compare a critic to a coach. A coach's job is to say, your play went well. You, 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 you faked it to the left, then you crossed over to the right. You was able to make that drive down to the paint, and you was able to lay it up. That's great. But see, the next play, though, when you had the ball, you let it get stolen because your handle wasn't too good. That's all right, though, because you more than made up for it. But we need to work on your dribbling skills. You can't keep crossing to the right. You got to be able to work that left, too. That's a coach. A critic would be, yeah, you scored 12 and you had six assists, but you know you got your ball stolen four times. You just can't get the, that's embarrassing. How you turn it over four times, man? What's wrong with you? I mean, you got to be able to shake it, you know? You weak on your left side, man. You know, I, I mean, one of the moves was like, dang. <laughs> <laughs> This is the antidote to the, to the critic. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15 in the Message Bible. It says, get along among yourselves, each of you doing your part. Your counsel is that you warn the freeloaders to get a move on. Gently encourage the stragglers and reach out for the exhausted, pulling them up to their feet. Be patient with each other. Be attentive to individual needs and be careful that when you get on each other's nerves, you don't snap at each other. Look for the best in each other and always do your best to bring it out. That's the antidote for the critic. Number three, they're irresponsibles. These are people that you know you cannot count on. 
It's not that they don't want to, but they don't consider the long term. They don't think about what's next. They lead you into hopefulness, but they can oftentimes be dreamers. They're typically self-centered, spontaneous, and this is the, the crazy part. The irresponsibles tend to be fun. They're charming, but yet very unreliable. They'll flip on you in a minute. The irresponsible will tend to wander from job to job. They're not consistent in their lifestyle. They're known to make last-minute drastic decisions or changes without real consideration. The irresponsibles. They're inconsistent. And not only are typically irresponsible people inconsistent, but in their inconsistency, I'm not saying they're trying to hurt people, but in their inconsistency, in their irresponsibility, they end up 100% of the time hurting people. When you first encounter them, you, I mean, they're charming. So you believe all the best about them. You believe their promises. You believe, I'm the type of person that. As soon as you hear the, I'm the type of person that, pause. Because what a lot of times they mean to say is, I'm the person that tried to be. Okay? The irresponsibles are the people you know you cannot rely on. Someone in my life, I love them to life. I love them to life. I do. But I know if I ask them to do something, always, always have a backup plan. I mean, I'm for real, always, because they, they have a set of skills, and, 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 and they're supreme in their field, but I know I have to have a backup plan. This is the antidote, one of the antidotes to the irresponsibles. Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, but let your communication be yea or nay, for whatsoever is more than this becometh evil. Let your yes mean yes, and let your no mean no because the irresponsible tend to overextend themselves. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no's. Those are, that's just a briefing on some of the toxic relationships that we can encounter even while we're endeavoring to gain these seven essential relationships. I said earlier that oftentimes people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. This information, listen, there's, there's, th th this information, I got this by reading. And, you know, they acknowledge Black History Month and, and you know, and they say amongst uh, urban communities that if you want to hide information from people, put it in a book. Put it in a book. So there's two books that I read that contributed to this information. Number one is, actually I didn't read it, just heard the message, Eleven by Leonard Sweet. Eleven, and he goes more into more stuff than I know about, but Eleven, great information about relationships and how important they are to you, about this journey called life and how getting to the end of this journey is bittersweet if you try to do it by yourself. The second, and these are my mentors from afar because I absolutely love them, Drs. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend, Safe People. And that book right there turned my world upside down because they're talking about safe people and unsafe people. I would encourage you to download the book, to get it, because you will learn a lot about it. And then we're going to talk next week, like I said, about the Holy Spirit. Did you all learn anything? Yeah. How many of you are going to go home and take inventory of your relationships?
Even more importantly, go home and take inventory of yourself and say, where am I? I know when I first got married, my husband was like, you are hardcore. I was critical. And ladies, we, because we are on the earth to be a help me, we tend to be able to identify what's wrong with the situation instantly. Don't act like you don't know. <laughs> you, can, you don't even have to look at an individual. You can tell from your peripherals that something's wrong with that outfit. But I was a heavy critic because I was very critical of myself. And I came from a very critical family. And I mean, it was just a per the pursuit of perfection. But without Christ, you can never be perfect. In fact, he meets you at your imperfection and he completes your perfection. Amen? So I want you to go home and take inventory of your relationships, of, you know, just where you are and... and, and, and And, and, and the people that you surround yourself by. Now, like I said last week, every relationship has to have a foundation. And we're big on relationships, which is why we have small groups. And our small groups are growing by leaps and bounds because people are understanding that iron does sharpen iron. There is strength in community. There is a time where I need to lean on somebody's shoulder. But guess what? It's not effective if we don't have these three things in common. One, Jesus. Two, the word of God. And three, prayer. So if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior by your, while, while you're assessing your condition, and I want to say this. I heard this, and I was like, that's a powerful statement. You are not saved unless you've been converted. In your heart, there has to be a noticeable conversion in your heart where I don't want to do wrong. I'm not saying you'll never do wrong, but I don't want to do wrong. I want to love God. I want to please him. I want to honor him. Not because he owes it to me. He's already done what he's going to do, but because he's already paid the price. He's promised me an eternity it is presumptuous to think just because you die, you go to heaven. It's presumptuous. Hindus believe when you die, you come back in another form. Jesus says that I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The oldest and the youngest of religions acknowledges that there is a creator. Buddhists believe there's 12,000 gods. But see, when you see thousands of years of prophecy, thousands of years of truth, thousands of years of fulfillment, you can't help but to, to, to accept that, hey, there's something to this Jesus. There's something to this Savior. There's something to this Messiah. And for those that want to entertain that, Maybe, what if it's somebody else? Listen, I'd rather live this life assured that I've lived it to the Savior and the honor and, and, and to the glory of a God. Assured, and even if I do cross that bridge, 
praise God if it's true, which I believe it is, I'm on my way to heaven. If it's not true, I lived a great life. But if I did not live life on the side of Jesus, I'd hate to get to that bridge and find out that it was true. And I missed it. A lot of good people don't know Jesus. A lot of churchgoers haven't experienced a conversion. There's a story I want to share with you while you're examining your heart. There was a battleship. It was on an exercise at sea in bad weather. And the captain was on the bridge, and it was really, really foggy. Just after dark, the lookout spotted a light on the starboard side of the ship. The captain asked if it was steady or was it moving. The lookout replied that the light seems to be steady, meaning that they were in the direction for a collision course. The captain ordered without signal to the other ship, change course 30 degrees. We are on a collision course. The signal came back. It's advisable for you to change course. The captain signaled, I'm a captain. Change course 20 degrees. The captain was furious. And, and, the, the, and the, the captain was furious when he said this. But the response came back and said, I'm a seaman, second class. But you better change course 20 degrees. The captain was furious even more. And he sent back another signal saying, I'm a battleship change course now. The response came back, I'm a lighthouse. It's your call. <laughs> Jesus is the light of the world. There's only one way. There's no back door to heaven. With every head bowed and with every eye closed, if you have not received the light of the world, the life of eternity, the, the uncompromising Savior, the one who has extended life, grace, love, and mercy towards you. You have not experienced the conversion in your heart. I want to pray with and for you. Or perhaps you have, but you know that you are just like that captain. You're like, hey, change course. But God says, you know, you know what? I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I know that I love you enough for you to get to a place where you realize my love for you and you will, at some point, change course and line up with me. So perhaps you made some bad decisions. Perhaps you know you are living a life contrary to the will of God. Some people call it being backslidden. We simply call it being out of fellowship. God says, I'm forever married to the sinner. And if that's you and you want to make a decision once and for all, I want to live right for Christ. I know how good he can be to me. He's loved me even in my mess. And I owe him more than that. If you want to make that decision on today, I would love to pray with and for you. Or perhaps you have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about that next week. But there is an infilling that comes at the point of salvation, but there is an upon-ness that comes at the point of receiving him. And it's evidenced by the, by the Bible evidence of speaking in tongues. It's not spooky. It's not scary. It's not this woo-woo type of thing, but it's a true experience.